Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But when they did not understand the saying, they were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me." John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This book's main purpose, the gospel of Mark's main purpose, is to really show us, to reveal to us who the real Jesus is, to cut through all the assumptions that we make about who he is and why he matters. Uh, I think it was John Stott who once said that there's not a single more important belief to settle in your mind than what it is that you believe about Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're looking at in the Gospel of Mark. We're, we're looking with the desire, with sort of the lens to, 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 to get to know the real Jesus. And so we're picking up here in Mark chapter 9 today, and we're going to look at how Jesus challenges the assumptions that we make specifically about what makes a great and glorious life. Right? Many of us, I mean, we all long for greatness, right? We all long for glory. We want to taste it. Glory and greatness is something that we all hunger for. It's why we're drawn to things like epic dramas or, in, or like epic sport plays, right? It's why we're moved by riffs of music or by like a slimmer of fine steak. Deep down, we want glory. We want to taste for it. We're hardwired for it. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert that doesn't want to be in front of people. You don't, maybe don't want that kind of glory. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert who loves to be in front of people. Like whether, it is, whether you have a passion for praise or maybe even a fear of shame like most introverts, it's all rooted in just this deep hunger that we have for glory, this deep hunger that we have for greatness. 
And so to kick us off as we're going to you know, dive into that topic, I want us to read uh, the first few verses here, in, uh, beginning in verse 30. Jesus is with his disciples, and he has, for the last several chapters, been revealing to them that he's God, that he's the king of all kings. But now he kind of transitions in the story. We've been talking about this the last couple weeks. Now he's transitioning in the story and showing that the kind of king that he is, is he's the kind of king who goes to a cross. He's the kind of God who serves and who suffers in order to serve. And his disciples just don't quite know what to make of that. And so that story continues, that narrative continues in verse 30 when it says they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Now, to be clear right here, he's not saying that his death is out of his hands. He's not saying that his death on the cross is out of his control, but he's actually saying that this is part of God's great plan. This will happen. And then it continues. He says, and when he is killed, speaking of himself, uh, he's quoting here, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So it says Jesus has taken his disciples off to the side because he's teaching them something uh, deep. He's giving them the primary re- reason that he came. He's telling them that he came to die, to die in our place for our sins. That's the big picture. That's the big reason that he came, right? He came for a lot of reasons. I mean, he came to teach great things, to perform many great miracles. He came to start his church, but primarily he came to die in our place and for our sins, and so he kind of sits, uh, sits his disciples off to the side to give them a, uh, you know, a brief lesson in that uh, away from everyone else, but says that they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him because they, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around this. You see, they didn't understand that he didn't come to save them from earthly powers, but spiritual powers. He didn't come to make hit this life better, but to secure for us eternal life. He didn't come to do miracles, but to relieve the suffering that sin created in our hearts and in the world. Those are the primary reasons that he came. And these men, these disciples, they didn't want to think about that because they didn't want to think about the cross. They didn't grasp the reality that their great Messiah, Jesus, who they've been following around for months and months, they didn't grasp the reality that he, the great Messiah, was marching toward his death that he would die a criminal's execution. They couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Christ's glory would include a cross. This is the second time that Jesus predicted his death to them, and he, and he, and he told them that if they want to follow him, if they want to follow him, then they're going to have to take up their own crosses in, in a figurative sense and, 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 and die to themselves. He basically said, you know, you must die to your own self-centered universe. You must die to the glory of yourself. You must die to living for your own kingdom if you really want to live for his. And that's the huge paradigm shift going on right now, right? They expected Jesus to come with power, with authority, to save them from their oppressors. But they didn't realize that God's power, that Jesus' power is defined by his love. That his authority would be achieved through a cross. Huge paradigm shift that they're still coming to terms with. And so he's going to be unpacking with them. We're going to see over the next several chapters in the weeks to come, he's going to be unpacking for them what that specifically looks like. 
And a great life is ultimately a life that is lived for the glory of God and for the good of others. This is part of our mission statement here at, at King's Cross Church. We want to make disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors because that's what Jesus calls us to. That's what true greatness looks like. That's what a real glorious life is. It's ultimately about living our life, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so we're going to unpack now what that practically looks like in three areas. We have a ton of verses to go over, and so here's what we're going to, we're going to unpack. We're going to first see what that looks like in terms of our humble posture of service. Number two, we're going to look at what that looks like in, when it comes to pursuing holiness, both in ourselves and, with, and for others. And, and lastly, we're actually going to see what that looks like in God's heart for our marriages. Now, first point, our humble posture towards posture of service. Read verse 33 with me. Uh, it says that they, Jesus and his disciples, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, he said, what were you discussing on the way? So Jesus comes into this house, his disciples, they're, they're talking amongst each other, and he's, and, 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 he's, and he's asking them, hey, what were you guys talking about when we were on the road back there? And verse 34 says, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. I love that. It's like little kids who got caught, right? <laughs> they're just like, oh, they're just silent. Now, can we all agree them arguing with one another about who is the greatest is probably the dumbest argument in the history of the world, right? Jesus is on a mission here to train them and teach his disciples, his group of leaders here that will progress God's kingdom on earth after he ascends. And here they are, they're arguing with one another about who's going to be the greatest. That's not the point, right? Like rather than looking to Jesus, who is ultimately the greatest, and learning from him, they're off to the side arguing with one another about who among them is going to be the greatest. And the truth is, as we mentioned earlier, like we all dream about greatness, right? Like we all long for greatness. We all want and admire heroes, and we, we, all, we all admire like the, the heroic, the epic heroes, and, 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 and sometimes we just kind of want to be one, right? Like before we had Marvel's Avengers or DC's Justice League, there was like Frodo, right? And Aslan. And before that, we had Homer's Iliad. We long to witness or to be part of just these heroic feats of glory, to taste glory, to be part of glory. Like in Beowulf, one of the, the oldest uh, epics, when, when, when they said that, in, in, in that poem, they said that the heart of a warrior is, is, when you can, is when you say, let whoever can win glory before death. Let whoever can, when you're, when you're engaged in war, let whoever can, whichever one of you warriors, whichever one of you can, let you win glory before death. And he says, when a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only bulwark. I mean, that whole, that whole ethos, that whole longing has just been embedded in, in humanity for ages. We're drawn to stories where people with power, in their own way, triumph over evil, take responsibility to help the weak and to save the world from all that's wrong with it. That formula is baked into every heroic epic, and we, we love it. That's why we throw our money at it. It's because we dig it, right? Like That's why Avengers 3 was the highest grossing film of the year, and that's why Avengers 18 will be the highest grossing film of 2050. 
That desire for greatness is baked into our human identity by God himself. In Genesis 1, when it says we're made in God's image to, to, to create and to expand his glory from the garden, in Psalm 8, it says that, you know, we were made for greatness. We're set apart as God's creatures, us as humans, man and woman. We're set apart from the rest of the creatures for that kind of glory. But the issue is that sin has bent that good desire that God created us with, has bent it out of shape with where, where, where now our egos get in the way where there's this sinful tension now in the human heart, where instead of doing something great, we're content with just being seen by others as great. Instead of serving the weak, we oppress them, or we look down on them. We look down on the marginalized. That's exactly what the disciples were arguing about. Their heart posture was bent by sin toward toward sort of a self-centered greatness. Who among them would be great in the kingdom? And the fact that this conversation just follows Jesus' teaching, uh, his teaching moment about the importance of the cross, (laughs) I mean, it really shows us why that cross is necessary, right? Like sin fills us with the desire for our own self, like greatness, where we're at the center of our own universes, and it's all about us. Let's look at how Jesus responds to them. It says in verse 35, it says that he, he, Jesus, he sat down and called the 12, called his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus sits down, he calls the 12. These are the 12 guys that he's been really investing into. The guys that he really wants them to get this because these are the guys that would be planting churches in his name. These are the guys that would take the gospel from this small region to the end of the world so that it would eventually spread from region to region to region down through from century through century uh, over till we're here at 21st century like Rancho Santa Margarita in South Orange County. Like all, all of that is is like Jesus is is banking on the disciples getting this point. And so he sets them aside. He calls the 12, his inner 12, and he says to them, look, if anyone wants to be first, then he must be last, and he must be servant of all. And so Jesus says, look, you want to be great? You want to be first? You got to be you got to be last. You got to put others first. You need to be a servant of everyone. Now notice Notice he doesn't slam them or rebuke them for desiring greatness, right? They're arguing about who's going to be great, and he's like, no, it's not about being great, right? Like, he's like, you, you shouldn't desire that. He doesn't slam them or rebuke them for desiring greatness. He never says, don't you know any better than to desire greatness? Or like, He doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness. Instead, he redirects it. He renews their desire. We could say he redeems it for its original purpose. You see, and this is an important lesson for all of us because each of us in this room, we all have power and influence somewhere, right? We all have power and influence somewhere. Like some of us, some of you are formal leaders with titles and roles. But some of you are, maybe you're informal leaders, Right? If you're, if you're a member of this church, if this is your church home, then you have influence in some sense, right? Because when people are visiting, when they're guests here, like they're looking to you to, to figure out, you know, what is, what is it following Jesus here at King's Cross? What does that, that look like? What is that all about? People are looking to you. 
And some of you, maybe in the community or in the workplace, you, you might think you have little uh, influence and power and that others, others have, have more. But, but, but any time you're around any kind of sort of network or association that you belong to, your neighborhood, your workplace, your family, like if you're a parent, then you have influence over your children. You influence them. Even some children have influence over the younger children, right? Like we're teaching, we're teaching our daughter that right now. She turns four today. Uh, so if you see her outside, um, she's she's the she'll be like the cutest one that walks out of <laughs> the kids ministry area. No, I'm just kidding. All your kids are cute. Um, but uh, she she turns four today, and and we're. Uh, we're teaching her all about like how she, in some sense, like she's a leader to her, her little two-year-old brother. And that everything she does sets an example for him. And so sometimes she takes that and she tries to tell him like what to do and like takes his toys. And she's like, Haddon, that's my son's name. He's like, Haddon, I'm a leader. You got to listen to me. And we're like, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> that's not what we meant by that, right? We're telling you like you, you need to set a good example for him. Show him what it looks like to be a good little boy by, by, by being a good little girl. You know what the purpose of power and influence is? It's not to be number one. It's not to end up on top and to have it your way, but to serve for the good of others. To help others get ahead. To help others get ahead, even if it comes at the expense of yourself. We have no better example for that than Jesus himself. You know what Jesus did with his authority and his power? He surrendered it. He reoriented it at the cross so that we could be made sons and daughters of God. He laid his life down so we could get ahead. You know what he did with his righteousness and his perfect record? He imputes it to us so that we can get his perfect obedience. That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. This huge chunk of text is all about how King Jesus, he empties himself. That's the kind of king that he is. That's the kind of God and ruler that he is. The kind of king that empties himself by taking on the form of a servant, born of a woman, obedient to the point of death on a cross. Why? So that he could serve those who have been weakened by sin. Us. To liberate those who have been enslaved by sin, us. To renew what has been broken by sin, us. Jesus, who had everything, left his throne, walked off of it, put that behind, exchanged it for a cross to serve us. To serve us. If there was ever a man born of a woman who deserved to have the rest of mankind serve his will and purpose, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not because he's some totalitarian dictator. It's because he's the God who made us. Yet he emptied and humbled himself. And at one point, he takes the posture of a common slave and even washes his followers' feet, even the feet of the man who would betray him. Think about that. He washed the feet of the man who would eventually betray him. Those feet that would eventually walk out the door and betray him for a few pieces of silver. He goes, Jesus goes to the cross even for those who abandoned him in his last hour. This is the heart of Jesus' illustration when he calls a child out of the group. 
Read verse, verse, verse 36. He says, Then Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him, taking a child in his arms, he said to them, his disciples, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, what is Jesus saying? What is he trying to illustrate with this child? He's trying to illustrate this point that he's been making, that greatness is about serving. But in particular, it's when you serve people the way that you would serve a child. Someone who, 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 has, who has little or, has, or who has nothing to offer. Who has little or nothing to offer. You see, this child has no power. This child had no position. This child had no possessions. And so Jesus is saying, look, like you need to, the way that you serve others, it would, you need to look at it as the way that you would serve this child where, where, where there's nothing in it for you. There could be nothing in it for you. That's the kind of servant that Jesus is. That's the lesson. That's why he would serve even his betrayer, even those who would abandon him. So what about us this morning? Like, what about you? Do you serve others in this way? Do you, or, or, or when you do, when you serve others, is it to get something in return other than God's delight? Do you serve others even though it causes you suffering? Do you serve even those that, 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 that hurt you? Jesus washed Judas' feet not for Judas but for the Father. And that is the heart of humble service. It's serving whether or not you're appreciated, whether or not you're noticed, but simply because, but because Jesus has freed you and motivated you and empowered you now to live not for yourself, but for the glory of him and the good of others. And so we have a humble posture of service. Another way we can live for the glory of God and the good of others is by, number two, pursuing holiness both for ourselves and for those around us, right? Like if we want to truly live for God's purposes, and if we truly want to live for the good of others, then we should want ourselves and others around us, those that are close to us, to grow in holiness. And when we say holiness, what we're referring to is being set apart by God for his purposes, to live for him and to live for the glory, glory of others. That's ultimately, I mean, that's what holiness's end is. Right? It's being set apart by God, for God, so that we live for his glory and for the good of others. It's about growing spiritually to look more like Jesus. And so look at what Jesus has to say on this point, beginning in verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and, were, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Uh, if you're new here this morning, welcome to church. <laughs> we're glad that you're here. Um, like, if, we, when, if when you read this, if your gut response to this text is like, whoa, dude, right? Like, what? Th- this is intense, right? Like, whoa. Like that's your, if your response when you read this text is, whoa, then, then it worked, right? That's the point. Jesus is purposefully making a jarring statement here to drive home an important and serious point to him. He wants us to be serious about sin. 
he wants us to take seriously this call to pursue spiritual growth for ourselves and also for others. Now, we need to remember the context here, and it's important to, to get the context that Jesus is talking to his disciples here, all right? So Jesus is talking to his disciples here in this way. He's not speaking to those on the outside. He's not speaking to the marginalized. He's speaking to those who should know better. He's speaking to those who were just arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And so some of us, when we, when we read, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, like sometimes uh, we, we, we can walk into church with this assumption that like, hey, I know Jesus and so I'm good, right? And then every point in this sermon, I'm thinking like, okay, I know someone who needed to hear that, right? <laughs> right? Or, or I'm going to write this down so I can share this with that, that, that one person who really needs this. But, but, but Jesus is t- talking to his disciples here, his inner crowd of his followers. And sort of a takeaway for that from us is that when, when, when we hear biting uh, remarks like, like this from Jesus, we, 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 we should do a bit of self-reflection, assess our own lives uh, up against God's holy word. And so he, Jesus, he's making a point to them about how he wants them to live in their relationships uh, amongst each other. Read verse 42 again with me. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into a sea. Now, who are the little ones he's talking about? Who are the little ones? He says right there in this text, little ones who believe. The little ones who believe, right? So he's not talking about children anymore. He's actually using an affectionate term here for those who believe in him as a son of God. So Jesus is saying, look, if you're, if you're a follower of me, He's saying, if, 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 you, if you know me, if, if, if you're one of my followers, uh, if you believe in me, uh, he, he, he's, like, he's calling them basically like uh, God's spiritual children, right? It's an affectionate term there. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, then God has given you influence in the lives of those around you, right? Like you're part of God's family now, and so you have influence by the sheer nature of the fact that you have brothers and sisters in Christ now. Like you have influence with the brothers and sisters around you uh, uh, in their lives that God has given you. He's chosen you to be part of what he's doing in the lives of others. When you got saved, you weren't just reconciled with God. You were called into a spiritual family. You were drafted onto the team, and now you have a role to play in the spiritual growth of others. We need each other. We need each other. And we, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were going through Ephesians 4, that if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, then that means that you can't grow comfortable as a consumer of church life. You can't. We don't come here to consume goods and commodities on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning has historically by the church been considered the Lord's Day. This day is given, is, it's, it's by, it's given by him and for him, right? We can't grow comfortable being consumers. We need to contribute and worship and learning and being there for one another. We're called to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands in the lives of other people. And so we should ask ourselves questions like, what kind of effect do I have on the lives of the believers around me? Am I allowing God to use me as his instrument? Do I represent him well? Does my life display his transforming grace? Jesus says in verse 42, don't influence others to sin. 
Don't influence others to sin. He says, you, you know, like, don't, don't, don't influence others to sin. It, it, would, it would be better if you were just were, were, were not in the family and then for you to, uh, you know, to tempt somebody in the family to act as though they were not. Jesus says, rather than tempting someone to, to sin, he says it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Gnarly words, right? Gnarly words. Jesus' disciples would be familiar with that metaphor, though, uh, with, with, with that, that punishment metaphor, because throwing a millstone around someone's neck and casting them into a sea is the way that the Romans, who were the oppressive government at the time, that was the way that the Romans punished rebels of the empire. And so that's what the, 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 the point that Jesus is making, is that this is how God takes our influence amongst one another. He's making a point that if rather than helping somebody grow spiritually, if you are actively hindering their spiritual growth, then that's like committing cosmic treason against the kingdom of Christ. Cosmic treason. It'd be better if you weren't part of the family than for you to actively try and disrupt what the family's supposed to be about. And so if you're a parent asking your, or trying to raise your, your children in the Lord, then, then, then you ask yourself, you know, do my words and actions and motives, do they actually encourage my child's faith, my child's integrity, his or her holiness? If you're a believing husband or wife, you ask yourself, does the way that you lead or submit to the other, does it encourage their faith in God? Do you intentionally encourage the best in them, or do you intentionally draw out the worst? And sometimes we unintentionally draw out the worst in each other, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about, do you intentionally draw out the worst in them? Or maybe when, when you're with your believing friends, like, are you influencing them towards good or towards evil? Towards truth or towards lies? Towards God's beauty or towards worldly lusts? When you're with people from your church family, like if King's Cross is your home, like if you're with people from King's Cross, are you pointing them toward holy living or are you pointing them towards unholy living? Jesus says, he has serious words. He has gnarly words. He says, if, you, if, you're, if you're not doing that, then it's almost like you're committing cosmic treason. And then Jesus kind of transitions from the way that we influence other, and he makes the point that we also need to do some soul work on ourselves. We, not to be, be, we need to not only be encouraging and influencing others towards holiness, we need to have our own personal commitment to grow in holiness. Read verse 43 with me. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to, to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut that off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and, and the fire is not quenched. So again, he's just kind of piling on with the intense language, isn't he? And Jesus is using these body part word pictures to illustrate classic gateways to sin for us, ways that we tend to be tempted to sin. He's saying, do your feet take you places that you shouldn't be? Are your hands reaching for things that you shouldn't desire? 
Are your eyes locked on something, gazing at something that you shouldn't be pondering? And to be clear, Jesus is using hyperbole to drive a point when he says, tear out your eye and cut off your limbs. You know, hyperbole. He's, he's, he's purposely overstating things to make point the seriousness of what he's saying. Right? He's not appealing for us to be a church of like wood-legged, hand-hooked, one-eyed pirates, right? That's not what he wants us walking around as. He's using hyperbole to say, look, this is a serious matter. But if left unchecked, if left unchecked, if we leave our hearts unchecked, it can lead to death. It can lead to death of the eternal variety. And so he uses these sort of gnarly hyperbolic word pictures to force us to ask the question, to force his disciples and us to ask the question, do you carry this level of seriousness when it comes to your sin? Then Jesus reminds us that the way that we live our lives says something to the watching world. And so it's not, it's, it's not just that Jesus wants them to understand that, look, you need to be encouraging others to grow spiritually. You need to have a commitment yourself to grow spiritually. Uh, but, 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 but you also need to keep in mind that the way that you live says something to those who are, who are out on the outside looking in. So far, Jesus has been addressing our relationships within the church, our relationships with brothers and sisters of Christ, our relationships with our own souls. But then he transitioned here in verse 50 to, to, to talk about the relationship we have with those who are on the outside looking in. And he says, salt is good, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, then how will you make it salty again? Then he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's with the salt talk? Now, you need to understand that back then, salt wasn't so much a seasoning, but a preservative. Salt wasn't to add flavor, but to preserve what was good in something. And so it meant to fight corrupt. It was meant to fight corruption uh, and decay with, with when it comes to food, perishable food. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't you get that you are meant to be salt and light in this world? Your presence is meant to be influential. It's meant to push back against the darkness. It's meant to, your presence is meant to put back, push back against decay, to push back against corruption, to push back against injustice. So his question for his disciples, the question that he's trying to get them to ask, that he wants us to ask this morning, is to really consider for ourselves, like, where is it that you're being tempted? Where is it that you're being tempted in the, in the influence that you have with others? Where is it that you're being tempted in your own spiritual growth? Where is it that you're being tempted when it comes to your witness to, before watching world? How are you leading others into temptation? Maybe you're egging them on actively or passively in conflict or in controversy, encouraging people towards anger or towards division. It might be through gossip, through slander, through antagonizing. And to, to be clear, like other people are responsible for their own sin, right? Other people are responsible for their own sin, but, but, but when it comes to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, he's saying that we are responsible for the role that we play in tempting others. He says, how are you displaying the transforming work of Jesus in your life? 
Does it show up in, in does the, by the places that you go, by the things that you reach for, that you desire, the things that you, you gaze at, that you long for? What do those things say about your spiritual growth? And how is that impacting your witness before the watching world? You see, Jesus says that true greatness is when we're not living for ultimately ourselves, that we find ourselves, our truest identity, when we're living for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so we see that by, by humbly serving, by pursuing holiness. And, and lastly, Jesus gives an illustration about when he's talking to the Pharisees about God's heart for our marriages. God's heart for our marriages. That's number three. Now, we've talked about how when you're a follower of Jesus, the, the, you serve the way that Jesus serves and you love the way that Jesus loves, which is whether or not you get anything in return, right? Now, the most important relationship that we're called to live that out in, that, that selfless type of love and sacrifice, is, is the marriage relationship. Now, it's important for us to understand that because, and, and, and look, and look it, like some of you here, I, I understand some of you, uh, maybe like you're, you're not married. Uh, maybe you're far from marriage because you're, you're still in, in, in high school or you're still in junior high, right? And, uh, but on this point, I, I don't want you to check out because this is an important point to consider specifically because this is something that our, our, our culture that we get in gets entirely backwards. Gets entirely backwards. Marriage is a gift given for the glory of God and the joy of mankind. But we don't, we don't, we don't treat it that way. We tend to treat it as, 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 as a commodity, as something that, that, that maybe I'll, I'll participate in if it will personally benefit me. But it's given as a gift from God that's meant for his glory and for our joy. Have you ever been to a wedding and taken time to actually stop and consider how strangely unique a wedding ceremony is, right? Or even just like marriage in general, like how, how, how unique that is to us as a species, right? And it's, a, it's a strange thing. Like I typically will make this point when I'm officiating a wedding that, that we're like the only species on the face of the planet that gathers like that on a wedding day for the exchanging of covenantal vows before a crowd of witnesses, right? It almost, it almost has this sense that's like, why do we do that? It's almost like a sacred moment, right? That's because it is. It is a sacred moment. Marriage is a sacred thing, but we don't tend to treat it like that or talk about it like, like, like it is that. Well, in, in chapter 10, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees who are kind of like, you know, the bad guys with the black hats that are always constantly looking for the moment to finally get jump on him, send him to the cross, right? These Pharisees. And in chapter 10, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and they try to challenge Jesus on this topic of marriage. I'm going to read this, uh, the, uh, just a chunk of text here. I'm going to unpack it for us. But read, read chapter 10, verse 1 for me. It says, uh, He, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught, he taught them. Verse 2, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? 
And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, what's going on in this passage? The Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. It says that right there uh, in, uh, in, in verse uh, 2, that they, they came there to test him. They're trying to trap him. They came there to trap Jesus and to try and make him look bad. And the way that they would make him look bad is because divorce was allowed in the, in the culture. And in some senses, it was that divorce was actually celebrated, even in Judaism. But they had a feeling here when they approached Jesus that Jesus would be stricter. What's really happening is that culturally, divorce was celebrated even within Judaism, just in the region, and, because, and it was all too common. Divorce was all too common, and so Jesus knew that. He knew what they were after. He knew that they were trying to, to trap him. And the Pharisees knew that divorce was permissible according to even some of their religious laws. But Jesus kind of cuts through the letter of the law, and he gets to the heart of it. He shows them, like, no, you guys have gotten the whole, like, divorce laws wrong, right? Like, you, you, you missed the whole heart of that. He talks about how, generally, marriage should be protected and honored, and unbiblical divorce should be avoided. This is the one of the places that he talks about that in. Now, the reason that divorce was celebrated is because people treated each other as commodities, not as image bearers worthy of dignity, right? Especially in marriage, uh, I mean, in, in their, in their like, you know, hyper-patriarchal society, men would treat women as commodities to be divorced and dismissed, uh, but then you could remarry if you got bored with not being married to that person, right? And so it was a jacked-up marriage culture, not unlike ours, not unlike ours. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses institutes these laws of concession, pointing out that divorce is already a part of their culture. And so it needs to be regulated so that people, especially women, aren't treated as commodities to be used and recycled. That was the point of the laws. It wasn't to give people every opportunity that they could to find a way to get divorced. It was to regulate divorce, which was completely out of control And when Moses was writing Deuteronomy. And so, the key phrase in Jesus' response as he appeals to God's original design for marriage is that he says that marriage is really about two people, a man and a woman, becoming one flesh. That's the key phrase. That's the key phrase. It's about becoming one flesh. And so this is way more than companionship. It's way more than cohabitation. It's way more than a contract. It's about a covenant. It's about making a covenant. You see, we've been talking up until now about how real, true greatness, true glory is when you're not living for yourself, but when you're living for God's glory and for the good of others. That's what covenant is all about. You see, covenant is less about the personal needs of the individual and more about the good of the relationship as a whole and everyone in it. That's what covenant is. It's less about, I'm hoping you'll be this kind of person for me. And it's more about, hey, I'm going to be this kind of person for you. 
for the sake of you, for the sake of us. I'm going to be this kind of person for us. I'm going to die to myself in the service of you because Jesus has saved me. He has redeemed me. He has renewed me and reformed my heart so that my deepest and greatest desire is not to have my own purposes met, but to live for God's purposes and for yours, for your good, for your glory, to live my life for the glory of God and for the good of others, especially my spouse. And that's what the Christian life is all about, right? That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what we've been unpacking for the last half hour. We've been, we've been unpacking, like, what does it look like to live not for me, but for God and for neighbor? What does it look like to pursue a greatness that actually brings me low while it lifts others high? What does it look like to fight for the growth of others, to flee my, my own temptations and desires because I don't want to harm the growth of God's church or I don't want to be a poor witness to the world? What does marriage and family and friendships and relationships look like when I treat people not as commodities to benefit from personally, but as image bearers? People made in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity, respect, and honor. And I have a desire to serve them the way Jesus would. Again, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for most of the year. And now we're at this turning point where, where, where Jesus is on his way to the cross. And the disciples are still trying to wrap their mind around that. They're still trying to wrap their mind around this, this concept of the cross. But the cross is everything. The cross is everything, and Jesus does not want us to miss this message. And Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples, they want greatness that puts them on top. That's what they were arguing about. They want a greatness that puts them on top. They wanted a relationship with God that doesn't challenge their holiness. The Pharisees, they wanted to keep the letter of the law while ignoring the very heart of it. But Jesus instead comes in and he challenges all their assumptions. He takes the assumptions that we make about him and the world and what greatness and authority and love and relationship and marriage looks like and the purpose of it. He takes all that and he flips it on its head and he says, look, you have, he says, look, you have your mindset, your worldview, uh, but your very frame of reference, it's off. Like your processor is broken. If you want life, if you want true life, if you want the great and glorious life, then you, like me, have to die. You have to take up a cross and follow me, Jesus says. If you want happiness, you have to take up that cross. If you want meaning and purpose, don't lose your soul for what's temporary. Lose it in Christ. Lose it in Christ. And for the glory of God and the good of the world, he will make us new. He will make us new. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.